With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Drivers! Start your engines! Keep the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. Can't see him. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey, race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network, and welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next hour as we go over the week in racing and preview next week. Joining me in the studio is Mr. Seth Eggert. Seth, how are you? Doing well. Good, good to talk to you. Uh, Richard Uden will be joining us a little later for the Formula One segment, uh, and Gray Warren is off off on assignment um, in North Carolina. But we do have a special guest uh, in the studio with us. I've got from A Mile Away Productions, Michael Miles. Um, he has a film coming out that you may have heard of. It's called Rapid Response. It's based on the book by Dr. Steve Olvey. Michael also was very active in directed the project uh, Yellow, 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 which you may have saw on NBC Sports or you may have seen on Amazon. But that film is coming out. We're going to talk about it. So first off, uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I kind of want to first like get into how this project came about. Uh, were you a race fan uh, before you took this on? A hundred percent. I grew up uh, primarily in Indianapolis, Indiana, so... I think it's kind of a requirement if you're born there that you've visited the Speedway, you've been there for carb days and practice and qualifying, especially, you know, growing up in the 80s. So it it was in my blood. Um, I was there all the time as a kid. I was always really a big fan, and I was my favorite driver was Rick Mears growing up. So I I followed his career pretty closely, and then when he retired, I I started following uh, Jacques Villeneuve, <laughs> and then when he left for Formula One, it was uh, Greg Moore. And Rick Mears has of course done a lot of work with uh, Dr. Terry Trammell, who's featured prominently in your film. Uh, but I wanted to uh, now your background. You were you've got a lot of really interesting credits to your name where you've worked as as an editor and as an associate editor on a lot of uh, animated projects some some very successful ones like uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers and, and things like that so uh, going from that hopping into documentary filmmaking uh, was, was that a, was that a large leap for you uh, was it a big learning curve uh, not at all actually it's it's funny uh, if you did your homework you looked at my credits but um, uh, actually, when I was in film school, I worked on a project with a friend of mine. It was one of the first things 
that I did that was uh, it got distribution actually it was uh, just a film that he made about going to the war in Iraq uh, when he got deployed and I helped him do some editing on that and that film ended up playing in some film festivals so I was I guess first a documentary guy as far as what I, how I learned um, at that point in time and then you know I've worked on all kinds of different various things but when it came time to to need a day job to kind of uh, get me through, I ended up in animation, and that was actually the learning curve for me because it's a different different process for editing animation, which starts by editing, you know, drawing storyboards that are just panels that will represent to the animation company what the shots should be animated and how they should be put together. So that was more of the learning curve where I had started originally doing, you know, stuff that was narrative and then doc-based back when I was in school. Okay, so this this kind of falls right into yeah. being like your first love, so that's that's awesome. Exactly. Yeah, racing plus documentary. So um, let's talk a little bit about the film itself. I, I found the film to be quite fascinating. Uh, the one thing that I learned the most is actually how these guys um, use the process of data collection to kind of really push forward the bar on on safety and and you know you've been watching racing as long as i have so we've seen uh, you know to to the times when it was uh, uh you know certain you might lose a hero or two a year to um, now it's an anomaly um so and the book itself there are portions of that book that are very difficult to read and i don't mean that there's a bunch of technical jargon i mean there's a bunch of very vivid descriptions of, of driver injuries um but but in the film it's toned down a little bit you don't rely heavily on crash sequences although there is some but you rely very heavily on um interviews both archival and and current so i was wondering if you would just kind of like go through the process um, for us that from the book to how you decided you want to present the story on film? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're adapting a book, there's way more material than you can ever get into, you know, a documentary that's just going to be a single film. So, you know, that's a starting point is you got to figure out exactly what the focus is and how you're going to drill down into the material, what you think the heart of that is and how to approach it. And one of the things that I guess drew me to the project is, I actually um, read the book after it first came out in 2006, I believe. And when I read it, I was um, I read it in one night. I, I kind of borrow stole the book from somebody and returned it the next morning before they noticed it was gone. Um, it was a friend of uh, my dad's. <laughs> I took it from his desk and I put it back the next morning. But while I was reading it, I wanted to understand and kind of visualize what I was reading. Um, and so to do that, I was trying to, you know, I was on the internet and YouTube was fairly new at the time, but really kind of coming into its own. So I was on YouTube trying to search for the different races, the different accidents, so that I could visualize what I was seeing and, or what I was reading in the book. And when I started doing that, I realized that everything or for the majority of stuff was online already. It was clips that people had taken from VCRs or whatever, um, old recordings of racing, and they were putting them online. And it gave me a much clearer picture uh, to understand everything. Uh, I was also completely reminded about how, you know, visceral my reaction was to some of these crashes, you know, how shocking they were to me. And I'm a person who's grown up watching, you know, a race every 
Saturday or Sunday once <laughs> it's racing season, whether it's Formula One, IndyCar, or NASCAR. So I, I felt like, wow, this is this is a, you know, this is pretty shocking, and it creates a it creates a pretty big reaction even in somebody who's expecting it to be brutal. So when we, you know, uh, looked at adapting it into a doc, the one thing that I wanted to do was to make sure that we didn't soften the information or hide away from the reality, but that we did not ever come across as being exploitative of it. Um, You know, these are accidents where people were injured horribly or possibly some of them are fatal crashes. And that could be family members, friends, other people who eventually see this. And so we only wanted to show it in a context where we felt like it was for a purpose of explaining something that was uh, learned, something that was fixed, um, something that was improved upon, or B, something that had a major driving effect on Dr. Olvi or Dr. Trammell for why, what drove them forward what motivated them to push safety to be what it became from their work. So I guess those were some of the considerations. I mean, it's a a big balancing act, and you're never going to please everybody. Um, But we didn't want to shy away from showing the reality, but you really have to, you know, kind of <laughs> tightrope it. You don't want to, you don't want to ever be seen as, you know, the, the, the easiest dig that somebody could make about the movie, if we had failed at this, which I don't think we have, uh, is that we were just, we were just there to show a bunch of crashes. We're just a crash documentary. And it's like, no, we wanted to be very scientific. We wanted to be able to look at it and learn things. And, and I think you've done a fine job with it. Again, like I said, I, I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the film. I found it to be quite informative. What was the reaction from Dr. Olvey and and Dr. Trammell, when you approached them with this project, were they were they were they all on board? Were they were they hesitant a bit, or or or, or was he on board right from the get go? Well, it's a, it's a little bit funny actually. Uh, so I was I grew up in Indianapolis, and I had some physical disabilities as a kid and some uh, health issues. And Dr. Trammell was one of my physicians, so I knew him from the time where I was a pretty little boy, maybe seven or eight years old. And uh, I had scoliosis, uh, which is a curvature of the spine, and he's one of the, you know, the top orthopedic surgeons uh, who treats that in kids in the world, or was at that time. I believe he's retired from that part of the, his medical practice now. But um, so I would go see him like every six months to get X-rayed to get looked at. And part of what I noticed and was aware of at that time was. Uh, you know, he had Rick Mears' memorabilia signed around the office, and that's because he had saved Rick's feet. And so he would tell me stories as I, you know, was growing up about how he would be at the racetrack, how he was riding in the car, how he would have to go do that stuff. So I guess I was, you know, always kind of interested in that angle of motorsports as well because I had a direct connection to it through uh, Dr. Trammell. Um, and when I read Steve's book and realized how much uh, – more was in there about Dr. Trammell that I didn't even know. Uh, I, I felt like, okay, well, I can I can get to these guys pretty easily and give them a pitch. Uh, and what I found out was about two or three weeks after I had read the book, they did a book signing on the north side of Indianapolis, I believe in Carmel, at a Barnes and Noble. So I went up there to go uh, see if I could meet uh, Dr. Olvey, and sure enough, I walked in, uh, saw Dr. Trammell, and he introduced me to Steve as a filmmaker, which at that point in time I was 
you know, just a very junior <laughs> film editor with, you know, very few uh, credits or experiences. And uh, I, I told Steve what I wanted to do, and I think he was just caught off guard that somebody wanted to, you know, take a, you know, adapt it, wanted to take that project on. And he agreed to talk to me. And um, from there, I think it was a few months out. It's, it's a little hazy at this point in time. But I got invited to go to his house down in Miami and uh, give him the pitch for how I wanted to make the film the way I envisioned it. And at the time, it was a little novel. It's a little bit more common now. But, you know, 15 years ago, a lot of documentaries were just guys sitting and talking to the camera. And you watched them on camera most of the time. And uh, and or you'd have the really long, like, uh, Ken Burns pictures that they would zoom in on and a few clips here or there. Um, but I always envisioned the film as being very kinetic, you know, knowing that there was this much footage uh, and film that existed of racing and of the racing cars from all these eras. I felt like, you know, I, I didn't want to have it to just be a talking heads doc. And I thought that we could really highlight and put the viewer at the scene of, you know, these accidents and watching the safety workers working while it's being narrated by Dr. Olvi, Dr. Trammell, and or some of the other safety people or the drivers who were involved in the crash telling the story. So it, that was always the pitch of the film. And I, and I, I was pretty proud of, you know, the way that, you know, we did about 80 hours worth of interviews with different people and about four and a half years of research. And I think we've watched every IndyCar, Champ Car, Kart <laughs> and USAC <laughs> car race from about 1973 to, around 2002 um, to, to find all the material to make the film. So yeah, um, those guys were, they were very receptive to it. I think they were unsure uh, to answer the question, uh, unsure of whether it would ever come together, but uh, they, they were on board with the approach. They thought it would be interesting and exciting. And, and then it took me several years to actually mount the film. Yeah, I know you've been you've been working on this this one for a number of years, and it's it's my understanding, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that that you put together the um the the television film Yellow Yellow Yellow, kind of while you were in the middle of of the production process for um, Rapid Response, and I had a chance to watch that one as well. Uh, for you folks listening, that one is available on Amazon Prime. Oh, I feel like the two films together are they're really nice companion pieces. Because um, rapid response kind of tells the whole story of the safety from from the beginning to where it's come today, and yellow, yellow, yellow shows the safety team today in action as it is, and and everything they do from from you know the quick response at the track, uh, the medical facility, and and again the the data gathering and the science. So tell us a little bit about um, how the idea for yellow, yellow, yellow came up while you were in the middle of this other project. Yeah, uh, that was pretty simple. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of a backstory, too. I'm a fan, right? I go to the Indy 500. I live in Los Angeles, but I saw a family back in Indianapolis. Go, I go every year. I, I visit the Long Beach Grand Prix. I try to go to several races. One of the things that um, I became acutely aware of while developing Rapid Response is um, I, I feel like IndyCar and the Indy 500 don't always do a great job of telling people how – in the trenches they are with solving, you know, theoretical safety issues <laughs> that they're spending money behind the scenes that nobody knows about testing things that nobody's even thinking about because those injuries aren't happening. Uh, 
Um, and so they, like, I, I'm aware of that <laughs> from my talks with Dr. Trammell and with Dr. Olvey, uh, how much money and resources and time is dedicated to keeping these guys safe. And so um, part of the original thought when we were developing rapid response, finally actually you know, getting into production with it was, okay, this book was written in 2005 or 2006. It's 2015. We're shooting our first interviews for the film. There's a gap there. What do we want to do about that gap? And I said, you know, while we're shooting... Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Let's just cover everything that we can. Let's talk to everybody about where it is today. And possibly what we'll do is we'll expand the scope of the film beyond where the book ends. The book ends in 2002-2003 at the demise of CART when Steve Olvey, you know, stopped being the safety medical director. And so we shot a bunch of interviews, and I believe it was that May in 2015 when James Hinchcliffe had the accident that uh, where he got, um, you know, pinned in the car by the piece of suspension that had come through his leg. And it's immediately, as, I, as soon as I found out about what happened and how he, his life was saved and how perilous that whole situation was, I knew at that point in time that, that's not possible if everything that had, you know, taken place had not occurred up to that point. Like that's kind of like the Alex and Nardi. It's the perfect, the perfect example of the, the functioning of the science and the safety team and all of the doctors and all of the protocol they've put in place for all of the years. So at the time that we were making this, we said, okay, well, maybe what we'll do is we'll end the film talking about James Hinchcliffe, how they saved his life and his comeback and all that. So we shot all of this material. Then we sat down and started editing and realized we had a four-hour movie, and it's just too much material to cover when you need to really be at about you know, 90 to 100 minutes. Um, and as much as we love that stuff, what we did was we, we cut all of the modern safety team stuff. We, we just set it aside, and we didn't touch it for about six months. And, uh, I don't know, six months later it occurred to me. I said, I think we have exactly what we need there to possibly just do you know, a one-hour television documentary. And uh, let's, let's see if we, we can write it out. So I sat down and I sketched out seven acts for – um, NBC, wrote it down, passed it to my partner, Roger. He looked at it, did one revision, and then we called C.J. O'Donnell back at IndyCar, and we said, hey, man, this is all footage that we shot that we were going to throw away, or, or we didn't know what we were going to do with it. If you guys want, we'll, we'll make a special for NBC, and it's you know going to be a pretty sweet story because it's about you know Hinchcliffe coming back and a year later winning the poll, all of that stuff. And I guess at the time, Hinchcliffe was nominated for the ESPY Award for Comeback Athlete of the Year. So NBC and IndyCar were gangbusters for it. And we kind of stopped what we were doing on Rapid Response for about five weeks and just made uh, Yellow, 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 um, which was literally five weeks from when we sketched it out, called IndyCar, to when we delivered it to NBC. So um, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of an interesting detour, but it was – the material was too good to leave off to the side and stuff that I thought was 
uh, incredibly fascinating. And of course, we got to have Will Buxton do uh, the voiceover, which was a, a, a treat. I'm a big Will Buxton fan, so it was something that we we really enjoyed. But we we also, um, you know, essentially made it for NBC with no expectation uh, for it, you know, really to keep on uh, existing out there as it has. And after it aired on NBC, we retained the rights, so we got it on Amazon Prime. But we never really did any promotion or much work uh, letting people know it was there. And it's really lived on for the last few years on Amazon Prime. And uh, from all the metrics that we've seen, it's got a nice audience in the U.K., uh, almost as big as the audience that it has um, in the States. And people keep finding it and keep talking about it. So that was a really nice privilege to be able to, you know, make sure that that work was, you know, seen and keeps finding an audience. Yeah, the one thing about IndyCar fans is that they're really good at searching for stuff because there's there's not tons of content out there about IndyCar. So so whenever we we come across something and find it, we'll we'll let all our other friends know. So which uh, which and again, I really enjoyed Yellow 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 as well. Um, I thought it was you know, very well done, and of course, um, Hinchcliffe's story is just just so incredible. Um, I think at the time, not a people, not a lot of people realized just how, just how harsh those injuries were, and just how how close he came to bleeding out at the scene. So, uh, you know, fine job to the crew there, the safety crew. Now, Seth has a couple questions for you too. I don't want to dominate the whole interview. So, uh, <laughs> Seth, Seth, what you got there, buddy? Well, as uh, as Michael was explaining earlier, how they go from the start of the safety innovations all the way to today, sometimes fans almost are commonplace taking for granted that both IndyCar, NASCAR, Formula One, etc., are not as dangerous as they used to be. Uh, and saying it in that way for a reason. What do you believe is going to be the biggest takeaway from uh, the documentary? You know, for me, the biggest takeaway from the doc is, uh, and what I hope I, the, the fans will get out of this, is this is a really American story in a lot of ways. Uh, no, no, no band of drivers had to get together and unionize and, and yell at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or the IndyCar Series to get them to start, you know, the safety program. That was really um, done by a couple of doctors who just so happened to come out to the track and sign up because they loved it. And they, and Steve Olvey ended up being the first, you know, doctor on a racetrack just because he was a, you know, a fan and could use his race, you know, his doctoring, the fact that he was becoming a medical doctor to get credentialed to go work with Tom Hanna at the Speedway. Um, these guys, nobody asked them to do what they did. They were self-starters. They sat down and they said, um, you know, we don't want to see these guys get hurt needlessly. We have science. We are medical doctors. Let's apply that. And I think that's incredible. I think, you know, when people think about where you are with other sports today and some of the injuries that are happening, and it's like those are things that IndyCar uh, specifically and motorsports in general has been in front of now for 15 or 20 years. Uh, that And, and they're they're, you know, crashing cars at 120 G's. And I, I think that it's just, it's something, it's a legacy for that sport and a story that can be told that can make other people appreciate, you know, how much is being done. And frankly, from my seat, these guys are just incredible heroes. 
Uh, I mean, Steve Olvey and Terry Trammell were not getting paid. Uh, you know, they were getting sometimes their expenses paid for. And they were taking time away from their family, and they were sitting down trying to figure out how to take something that had a reputation for basically being blood sport, that at different points in different countries was being banned as uh, too dangerous. Uh, and they and they essentially went out there and slowly implemented changes together over a period of time to where the fans don't even really think about it. It's it's an absolute tragedy when uh, you have a crash like what happened to Robert Wickens. Um, people are, are gobsmacked by that because as a viewer, you are so used to being able to tune in to watching these people do this stuff at 220, 230 miles an hour, and – You'll see incredible, spectacular crashes, and nine times out of ten, these guys get themselves out of the car before the safety team arrives because that's how much safer everything is. And that's a testament to you know that kind of human spirit of, like, we can make it better. Let's go do it. Now, I saw a stat that uh, from the 60s and 70s, maybe early 80s, that one in seven drivers passed away from the various crashes, and this is – in the era up until uh, Dr. Olvey and Dr. Tremel started doing their work. And as you said, uh, Motorsports has been kind of the leader while all the others are behind. More specifically, Formula One and IndyCar, NASCAR admittedly has lagged in certain places, especially, say, safety teams where IndyCar has the what was the Hamaltro safety team, now the American uh, Medical Response Team. How much of an impact do you think motorsports will have in the long run that maybe, say, the NFL might be able to learn something from those medical response teams? I think it's already had so much, and that's, you know, not all of it's 100% public, so I don't want to say too much. But from what we've heard behind the, the scenes and interviews and different conversations, the medical research that the doctors uh, you know, Steve Olvey and Terry Trammell did by just collecting the data, logging it and cataloging and trying to understand and then making improvements to cars and this kind of stuff. The, the, the procedural things that they learned and all of that data has gone on and been purchased by um, major groups, uh, U.S. government, military, NASA. There's all these groups that have asked to see their research because they can't understand it. They don't have any other way to measure it or test it. And stuff that they thought was impossible, you know, for um, forces to be enacted on a human body and people to not be killed or drastically injured, you know, IndyCar uh, had that data and was able to show, no, this is this is this is a, a, a huge set of data points that we can prove that your understanding of the the science on this is limited. So I know for a fact that you know the the, the car manufacturers improved car building because of what they've done. Everything's got safer on the road because of what they've done, and just standard medical response has improved from things learned on the racetrack. So it's it's informing everything. And that's part of the reason I like telling the story is that this is a couple of guys, a couple of guys who were doctors in Indianapolis who kind of, you know, started doing some research and going to races and making it better. And everybody in the world is probably being touched by the things that they've learned and their safety teams collectively have figured out and sent back into the world of medicine and car building and road safety and all of it. So, I mean, I would be hard pressed to say that, 
there's anywhere in the world that's not been affected by what they've done. And I think it's funny because we all know this as motorsports fans that, hey, car manufacturers come into motorsports because they want to learn and they can build better engines from it and better tires and better suspensions and all of that stuff. And it's their lab. Same exact stuff for the medical science. It's just not as talked about or marketed, I guess. Now, Richard Uden has joined us, I understand. Richard, you there? I'm here. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were. Now, uh, uh, Richard, this is Michael Miles from uh, the, the director of Rapid Response. I know uh, I had previewed before, but uh, you've got a question for Michael? Yeah, more of a not necessarily a direct question, but uh, you know, growing up in in Europe, watching Formula One and being involved in the, in the sport, my sort of the guy that I looked up to uh, or looked at from this side was obviously uh, Professor Sid Watkins, and and, and the, you know I don't know if you've read the two books that he wrote, um, the fascinating reads, uh, Life at the Limit and then Beyond the Limit. I think were the two books that he wrote mainly dealing with the data research that he'd done in Formula One and uh, and how the, the these guys um, sort of survive these accidents that, you know, me mortals such as, uh, you know, you and I would uh, would succumb to. And it, one of the things that I found fascinating from, from reading these uh, books was that the human body can become conditioned to withstand these impacts. Uh, you know, as they, obviously, as these drivers go through the series and they go through the formula the karting and the formula ford and the you know whatever it may be uh and eventually get to the big boys racing league um you know the the, the impacts that their body experiences obviously keep getting higher and higher and the body can actually train itself and condition itself to withstand these impacts and uh, it really does show how what level these these pe- these guys who some people say just sit there and drive a car actually perform at and it's it's a fascinating field and i've spent um you know many hours so reading the books that sid watkins wrote and uh working um a little bit on some of these areas and you know the detail they go to nowadays you look at in formula one now the drivers wear biometric gloves which do all the data collecting um and i believe they also have sensors inside their earplugs as well for G data, you know, data logging and monitoring the impact, and uh, it's it's amazing the level that they go to. It's a fascinating subject, and I think it's one as you mentioned earlier that you know is maybe overlooked by um, you know the fans and publicity side of the sport. Yeah, I mean one of the things that I think is actually pretty fascinating, and you know Dr. Watkins and Steve Olvier, um, they were good friends before Dr. Watkins passed. And it was actually Sid that uh, encouraged Steve to write Rapid Response. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they obviously interface quite a bit. And those, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Olvey, Dr. Trammell, and Sid Watkins um, were the two of the or three of the founding members of the FIA Institute for Sustainability and Safety or whatever the jargon yeah. is that they use. But that's basically the group that kind of came together, the first uh, international body bringing folks together to to kind of share research and data and to to talk. But one of the things I always find really interesting is both him and and, uh, Dr. Olvey and Dr. Uh, Watkins were huge advocates in trying to explain to people that uh, just because it looks like they're doing, you know, drivers appear that they're just doing stuff that we do on the roads (laughs) and that's not athletic. These are incredibly finely tuned athletes, and they have to be to just be able to do basic things like apply the correct amount of pressure to the brake pedal, too slow for the corner, 
12 corners or 13 corners, yeah. you know, a, a lap across several hours. So, yeah, I mean, their bodies are completely as athletically trained to, you know, handle those, you know, forces of uh, just driving the car a little and crashing the car and being involved in those incidents as much as any NFL player or NBA player yeah. is trained and conditioned to handle the different demands that <laughs> their sports place on them physically. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great talking point and it's something that uh, I think is often overlooked by people who look down on motorsport. Mm-hmm. And so, so here, one question that I have, and <clears throat> I, you know, I, and I, I hate to single it out, but I do feel that this is maybe a, due to the nature of the sport, more of a NASCAR problem than maybe Formula One and, and IndyCar. But my fear is that the drivers, and especially some of the younger drivers in the sport, are becoming a little bit complacent when it comes to safety. Uh, you know, we've, we've had some big accidents recently. I mean, the one that springs to mind was Austin Dillon's accident down in Daytona three or four years ago now. And, I mean, that was just a horrific accident. I mean, in, in all rights, there's no way you should have walked away from that. But the safety work that these guys are doing and the teams are doing and the governing bodies are doing uh, is, is revolutionizing the sport from a safety standpoint. Uh, but the danger is inherent. You will always have danger when you are doing what these guys do. And at some point, as, as horrible as it is to say, at some point in the future, we will lose a driver through an accident. We don't want to, but it will happen. Um, you know, unfortunately, IndyCar's seen that, you know, in the last couple of years with Dan Weldon and... Um, Justin, uh, Justin Wilson. Justin Wilson, yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, a couple of other horrific accidents, um, you know, that are thrown in there as well. I just, I worry that some of these younger drivers, especially, who've, as horrible as it is, is have never experienced a death at a track or never experienced an accident like that just don't maybe understand what it's all about and just take it. Well, I can hit the wall and I'll walk away from it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to speak directly on that. I, I, I do know from talking to a lot of the, the legends that we did in rapid response, the Bobby answers, um, Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones, a lot of these guys will talk about that. Um, you know, that there's a, a bit of concern that it's, um, so safe then the drivers start driving the cars in a way that makes it less safe again. Mm-hmm. They're not showing the proper amount of respect. And one of the things that, um, you know, we didn't touch on it in the film, but a lot of the different conversations and the interviews that we actually had with the legends of the motorsports world, the common refrain that we kept getting was you have to get rid of the, the, the downforce um, or at least lessen it to a significant you know, degree, uh, because that creates some artificial conditions that make them feel like they're driving almost like in a video game. And if you got that away from them, it, it reconnects the driver to driving by the seat of his pants a little bit more, mm-hmm. and they're going to have to drive that car, and they're going to understand how, how how close they are to the limit. Whereas with the high downforce stuff, and this seems to be, you know, a conversation across motorsports right now, NASCAR's trying to figure out a better aero package and Formula One's talking about their next level of regulations. And IndyCar, you know, just came out with their recent regs that back the downforce down. But you're basically, you're limiting the driver's um, ability to have a say in the 
especially on oval driving, have, have a say in the performance of the car. And it's all, you know, a bunch of guys mashing the accelerator to the floor, holding on, and then they have to take insane chances to, you know, make a pass and they have to do unsafe things. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, in that regard, I think, I think it is a, a it's a lofty discussion, but I think that you're always going to struggle at the same time with young guys who feel like they're invincible. I mean, I remember when I was just a 16 year old with a license and I felt a heck of a lot more invincible than I do. You know, 20 years later. <laughs> so, it's, it's hard to say how much of that is human nature and how much of it is, you know, being, being a little spoiled. Cause I, I can imagine if you're a guy who has your first big shunt in a formula one or a NASCAR or an Indy car, that'll wake you up pretty fast about how painful and how close to the edge you know, these things are, you might walk away, but you're going to feel it. And yeah. you probably don't want to do that every week. Yeah. No, I mean, there was a, I think about the last time I remember a driver really being reprimanded. Um, now I'm, I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head here, but there's a formula three Euro formula three race at Monza a few years ago. And I'm going to say Lance Stroll was involved in a horrific cartwheeling accident. And there'd been like three or four in the first, because there's normally three races on a weekend in Euro Formula 3. And I think the first race was just littered with accidents. And the actual race organizer said, nope, <laughs> we're stopping you guys, you know, putting everybody in time out, basically. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to think. I don't know if it was uh, Monza. I'm trying to think now. But it was certainly... A few years ago, the, the race organizers um, sort of turned around and said, uh, no, we're stopping you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's funny. I Actually, I also have a nephew who's a go-karter, and he's 12 years old, and it's hard, you know. Like, I, I even see it at that age where the guys are I, – I wish that there was tracks and, and things that instilled a little bit more discipline that you don't – try to run each other off the road and i know that's part of the learning process for the young guys but we are playing um motorsports is a is a game that you know it doesn't take a lot to have uh a catastrophic incident that you know may be nobody's fault and somebody gets hurt so if you can (laughs) get everybody to learn and to show that respect on the track it definitely helps quite a bit for sure yeah yeah, I think it's just wonderful that that we're right now we're we're living in a time where racing is is safe, but it's still you know it's not totally sanitized. It's still, it's still exciting to watch. You know, we're not we're not doing slot cars or or remote you know remote control cars, but it's there there's when when you think back to the '60s and the '70s when the the speeds were increasing faster than the circuits could keep up or the medical technology could keep up, and and literally at the beginning of the year you would wonder how many guys were going to be there at the end of the year now uh, when there's a driver fatality or a a serious injury it's a it, it's a shock um which is uh, yeah, which is a good thing that that it, that it should be shocking that this that the sport has come so far um and particularly with the the work of guys like steve olvey and sid watkins and terry trammell so now uh, michael the release date for the film is september 6th and that's theatrical yeah. um it's is limited theatrical yeah, it's a limited theatrical. Uh, we're going to be in about uh, 20 cities across the U.S. and Canada, and we're working on you know theaters uh, as well. I don't know an account yet for the U.K., but it's going to be available theatrically in the U.K. in a couple of screens, um, a couple of places uh, in Canada, so like Toronto 
Edmonton, um, and I don't know my Canadian cities that well, but uh, <laughs> some of those some of those Canadian cities will will get it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, basically, if you could imagine, if there's a a, a town that uh, supports motorsports, um, has some motorsports uh, connection in the English speaking North American, uh, you know, world. That's where the, the where the film's getting booked. Well, certainly it'll be uh, premiering in Indianapolis, I imagine, right? For sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely it'll play there. I mean, we did a, a, a an actual premiere before the Indy 500. Um, had a bunch of folks out, motorsports press and things, um, and it got a nice response. Chip Ganassi raved about it. He came out, um, and uh, Robin Miller came out and hosted as well so yeah i mean we're definitely going to be in indianapolis probably charlotte you know um just about anywhere i mean it seems to be what's interesting to me about it if i could just say this really quick is um the film is really for you know made for motorsports fans and we know that they should be interested in its material and drivers and things that they know about uh so it has a natural hook but one of the things that's been really awesome for us as the filmmakers is that we really intended to make it something that wasn't only interesting to the motorsports fan that could have a broader appeal, have a broader human interest. And so far um, we've ended up with a couple of screenings where you can imagine um, colleagues or uh, doctors or motorsports people have come to the screenings invited and brought along a, um, a husband or a wife who was not at all part of the medical or the motorsports world and who thought, Oh boy, we're not going to, I'm just kind of here <laughs> for an event because my significant other was invited and I'm kept coming along. And they would come up to us after the film and have multiple times talked about how much they had no interest in any of this material. We're kind of dreading watching the movie and how much they enjoyed it. And to us, that's one of the, the best compliments that I think we can get. But I also think it's um, a great point. I want to tell other people, if you have any interest in just good films and human interest stories, documentaries at all, this is something that might actually um, fit that bill for you. So, so you know, it's nice to have people who haven't have no connection to motorsports come and tell you, I'm, I'm now interested. I want to check out a race. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what, that's what we're hoping to do with the film. We want to expand the audience of who watches motorsports and who might be interested in checking out a motorsports documentary. Outstanding. Yeah. And, and you have lined up some, some really great interview subjects in this film. I know the Bobby Unser's in there and, uh, Rick Mears does a segment, Tony Kanaan, uh, Parnelli Jones, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the, you had so many in there. That must have been, you know, for you who grew up as a race fan, just just an honor and a privilege to uh, to, to to get those guys lined up and interview them. Oh, it was fantastic! I got to tell you, man, the first the first set of interviews we did for the film were at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, we got to go up into their facilities uh, over the uh, the pits and shoot kind of out towards uh, the, the main grandstand across the way. We interviewed Mario Andretti and Rick Mears back-to-back. And I got to actually sit and do the interviewing. And the crew was all kind of running sound and camera around me. And I, I was just like a kid in the candy store. I mean, <laughs> you can only imagine how cool it is. And, of course, you're always worried that you've got to be respectful of these guys' time. They give you a, you know, hey, we'll do 40 minutes, and you want to get them through the material. You don't want to waste their time. And what we kept finding is because we're fans. You know, the filmmakers are fans. We're not just people who are like, hey, this is a, this is a good story. 
they they enjoyed talking to us. So we we got invited to go to Bobby Unser's house to do the interview in ba- in Albuquerque, and we go out there and we were given a very strict. You, you get an hour and a half with Bobby. Well, we couldn't get Bobby off the camera after three hours. And then while we were wrapping up, uh, he's still talking to us while we're putting the gear away to the point where he started pulling out old memorabilia and photos and just showing it to us. And his wife was there getting so annoyed that he wouldn't just let us leave and wanted to keep talking. But for me, that was just awesome. I mean, I'm wandering around Bobby Unser's house looking at his trophies and his old photos, and he's showing us a, you know, the, the steering wheel from the car that he was driving that went underneath the, uh, you know, the guardrail in Phoenix and how mangled it was. I mean, it was just it was an amazing experience to get to sit down with those heroes. And they're also gracious and kind, and they all love to talk about, you know, racing, any kind. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, now you you have a co-director on the project, Roger Hines. Now, is, is Roger also a big race fan too? It's actually funny because Roger did not know anything about racing until he met me, and I had already optioned the book, but we were kind of at a place in the economy, and uh, I didn't know how we were going to put the financing together to do the movie. And I started working with him. I was his assistant editor on a project back in 2010. And when I was his assistant editor, I was like, hey, man, I want to go out to the Long Beach Grand Prix. My sister um, was renting a house to a guy who worked at Panther Racing at the time, and he offered to get us into the hospitality. I was like, I don't know if you've ever been, but you should come, you know, get out of the valley, drive down to Long Beach, uh, and come visit. And he was like, sure, I'll check it out. I've never been to a race. So I got him out to the Long Beach Grand Prix, and I could tell immediately he was hooked. You know, as most people are, you get out and you actually see the cars at speed and you smell it and you hear hear the sounds and all the stuff. It's it's incredible. And so he got really interested. And uh, I was kind of slow walking the idea of pitching him on helping me and, and co-producing the project. And uh, I convinced him to come out to the Las Vegas race where Dan Weldon was killed. Of course, we had no idea ahead of time that that was going to turn into such a a tragedy and a mess, but I was excited because I was like, come, come to an oval race. Now you've been to a road, you know, road course, street course race. Let's go out to check out the oval. It'll be a good time. We'll go to Vegas. And, you know, tragically that happened, but it, it actually just kept kind of building in his mind and he became a bigger fan. So yeah, I mean, by the time that we sat down and committed to making the film, he was, I had him watching formula one races and Indy car races and all kinds of stuff. Now he's been to, uh, the Formula One uh, Spanish Grand Prix uh, a year ago. We went to the Mexico City Formula E, uh, E-Prix. We went to the Malaysian, the last Malaysian Grand Prix together, and he regularly comes to the Indy 500 every year uh, back in Indianapolis and visits my family for that weekend. So, Oh, that's incredible. Now, again, I want to wish you guys the best with the film. I'm going to have to let you go so we have a few minutes to uh, to uh, go over the race news of the week. But, um, again, the film is called Rapid Response. The release date is September 6th. And the you've got a website, rapidresponsemovie.com, if I've said that correct. Mm-hmm. Right? And then, of course, you yeah, got – Please visit that. You can see the – you guys are on. Yeah, you can see the trailer on our on the website or on our social media. It's just search Rapid Response. Right, you guys are on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, Instagram. Yep, I've looked at all your stuff. So um, again, best of luck with the film. Thanks for coming on the show, and we will, um, you know, once once the show uh, airs tomorrow, we will tag you on all the social media so you can share it around. But it has been wonderful talking to you. So any any final parting words, Michael? Any anything else you want to plug? 
No, not not at all. I just want to tell you guys how much uh, it was a privilege to be on you guys' show. And and frankly, I just love talking racing. So thank you guys so much. <laughs> this is a great uh, great time. All right. Now, now you're welcome to stay on for the last 15 minutes of the show if you would just want to chat racing with us. You don't. You don't. Hey, if I'm allowed to. Allowed, no, you don't. You don't have to go. You don't have to go. So. Uh, no, no, we we love it when our guests stay on. Most of the time, they beg us to go. So, <laughs> no, the the only guy that regularly stays on our show for the whole show is um, Christopher Hinchcliffe, and that that's James's older brother, the author. He's been on the show a couple of times. He loves to stick on for the whole show. But Michael, you're welcome to stick through for the rest of the show. Now, um, Christopher DeHardy, you've just joined us. Oh yeah, they dragged me out of there, but yeah, I'm I'm here. How y'all doing? Good, tonight? good. Now, before we get into talking about the races at Watkins Glen, and and the um in, in the Hungara Ring, IndyCar had a big announcement this week. Uh, they've announced the engine regs for 2021, and it's going to be have some hybrid technology in there. So, Chris, I know you were at some of those press conferences, so just kind of kind of fill us in, and because the the the, the reaction has been thoroughly mixed across the board. Yeah, they had they announced that they were going to go to a single source hybrid unit for the 2022 season. Yes, I, rea- uh, I realized I misspoke. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it's it's typical for you, Frank. We get it. <laughs> no, but they're going to go to a single source hybrid uh, system for 2022. And I think it's going to be activated with the push to pass boost system, which means that the engines will be going to over 900 horsepower with that um, system activated. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what it's going to lead to. Uh, a lot of the engine manufacturers have been pushing for this because uh, IndyCar is one of the few series around the world that does not have some sort of hybrid technology involved. Uh, I know IMSA is going to be looking at doing that for – or maybe 2021, I think it is. It's 2021, 2022. I know IMSA announced for 2022 that they're going to be doing their new DPI engine formula Um that year, so actually, I think IndyCar is 2021. Uh, so actually, I don't think you did misspeak. I thought it was crazy. You know, here, here's the thing: everyone's going hybrid, and it's just, it's it's a lot of good news for American motorsport overall. So a, man, a lot of manufacturers have been looking at both IndyCar and IMSA because uh, I was actually at this M, the IMSA race this past weekend at Road America. So that's why I think my mind was focused too much on that instead of the IndyCar news. But um, but yeah, the, we have a lot of good news coming up for IndyCar, and they're looking at still having a third manufacturer involved, which I think that was one of the prerequisites was having um, hybrid technology for the third manufacturer to be involved. So, you know, overall, it's a good move for the IndyCar series that, to be sorry, involved with that. One question: um, I, I, I heard the news, I didn't see it in any detail, but obviously they're going to use this hybrid style system on the push to pass as you mentioned uh what are they going to do on ovals are they just going to have a normal aspirated engine or are they going to have some sort of hybrid system still uh i think it's going to be pretty much uh turbocharged like it normally is because yeah. there's no it's i think it's tied to uh, the braking system okay so yeah, the only that, the, the, well the only oval that they break out is, is gateway well the other the other big news is that the, the cars Iowa, will maybe? be carrying no they don't you don't break it Iowa. or you might you might have the throttle at Iowa, but you don't break yeah. it Iowa. Okay, well the other the big part of the, the engine package is they're going to have an, an uh, onboard starter, which means you know if, if we yes. have a little you know have a little turnaround there at, at, at Road America or at Detroit where a couple cars get stalled, and we don't have to to get the trucks out there to, to pull these guys and bump start them, uh, they'll be able to just start it right back up and, and get back in the race, which will be beneficial to the drivers not losing a bunch of time and you know beneficial to the fans that the, the, the 
kind of cleanup won't take quite as long. But uh, I have not heard that that's the how the, the, the KERS system is going to work on ovals is still kind of up in the air. And that's one of the questions being raised. So and I'm sure we'll have answers to that within the, the coming year or so. Yeah, they're, they're not. Like I said, more than likely, it's not going to work on ovals. It's just going to be on road and street courses. Um, but I mean, hey, then again, kudos to IndyCar for embracing you know the hybrid technology. I think at least NASCAR is the only main uh, manufacturer that's right. yet to announce a uh, hybridization plan. Although I, they, I've heard that they are looking into it. They are looking into an electrification plan, as they're saying. It would be essentially a hybrid, like you're describing, uh, and that. They're playing on 2022 as well with the Gen 7 car in 2021. But uh, that there's still a lot of details uh, being discussed there as to how much uh, electrification there's going to be and exactly how it would work. It's going to ruffle some of the old boys' feathers, isn't it? Well, Well, it didn't ruffle them enough. Well, one thing... Well, one thing NASCAR did uh, emphatically say is they are not going to a completely electric engine like some fans feared. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. you got a lot of these old school IndyCar guys who are just up in arms about the hybrid technology coming into IndyCar. They said, "Oh my gosh, this is going to be the death of IndyCar." I'm like, just read the article, read the details, do a little research. We're not, we're not turning into Formula E. We're not doing quite what formula one is doing yet it's just it's just a first step but um you know to be to be relevant to the manufacturers you've got to embrace the technology that's going to be next in a road car and even even with what indycar is doing right now it's still a tiny bit behind the curve of what's next for a road car so but it's a step in the right direction that will uh, you know they've, they've had a tough time getting that third manufacturer i believe Porsche was really almost on board until, uh, you know, they Porsche's breaking point was we, we're not using any hybrid technology. So maybe Porsche comes back to the table. Maybe, you know, somebody else comes to the table. We don't know. But uh, we are. Can I, can, I, can I throw one thing in on this? Yes, too? sir. All the people who are really up in arms about the hybrid system coming to IndyCar, I just don't understand it because it's, I mean, essentially, you look at what they're doing in supercars nowadays. They're using electrification to add power. <laughs> you know, it's it's not necessarily a fuel economy thing. A lot of times they're like, hey, if we can harness some more energy, put it in the batteries, and then give this thing some extra juice, well, that sounds good to me. I want more horsepower. I want more, you know, getting to the wheels in the Indy car anyway. So now we've got an electrification system to do it. I can't imagine that it's going to change the overall sound of the cars or the look of the cars or the style of racing in any detrimental way. It's just a different way to deliver some extra power to the wheels for some, you know, like a push to pass. This. Yeah. Sounds yeah, awesome. I mean, you're absolutely right. And they're, they're predicting that this will take the cars up to 900 horsepower. I mean, that's all you need to hear, 900 horsepower. I'm like, yeah, good stuff there. You know, that's what we want to see. But but again... The drivers are excited about it. That's what that's matters, That's what folks. matters, folks. Yeah, I mean, but you know, the old time, these are the same guys that want to bring the apron back in Milwaukee and would prefer to have an Offenhauser engine in a roadster. But... <laughs> well, to be fair, I want to see Milwaukee back in an apron, too. I just don't care about the Offenhausers. Thank you very much. Okay, all right. So, guys, we've got about seven minutes left in the show we have two races to discuss so um uh seth chase elliott repeats at the glen and yes and he did everybody's mad at kyle bush particularly bubba wallace 
uh, Bubba Wallace and William Byron and Chad Cornell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to name a few, uh, Kyle Busch forced his way by uh, William Byron at the end of stage one. Chad Knauss got on the radio to his driver, Byron, and said if he didn't see him going after Bush instead of being pushed around, that there was going to be an issue. So Byron decided to rear-end Bush under caution in the essence. Uh, Probably caused more damage to his own car than to Bush, but at least he listened to his crew chief. Uh, Then we had Kyle Bush spinning Bubba Wallace out later on in the carousel, to which Bubba, when he finally caught back up to Bush, turned him in the middle of the straightaway on the front stretch. And, and, and Bubba was, was his arm was yeah. Itching. Bubba was not yeah. apologetic. <laughs> Bubba was not apologetic at all. If you read any of his post race comments or some of his radio, yeah, he's, a, lot, a lot of words that we can't say on the air. So, oh. but yeah, oh, let's put this. Let's put it this way. This season for Kyle Busch has been Kyle Busch versus the drivers at KBM, and now it's Kyle Busch versus the alumni of KBM. Wow. Yeah, he was uh, – I, I, I saw that, and that, especially that move on the front stretch, that – yeah. When uh, when Kyle really lent on uh, Bubba, it was good to see Bubba push back there. I thought that was pretty uh, – you know, yeah, you get a little bit tit for tat, but at the end of the day, Kyle Busch is one of the – Senior guys in NASCAR, he's got a. I thought that was a pretty, pretty crappy move by him there, and pretty, pretty poor. Which, in the end, Kyle was able to rebound back up to eleven. That twice, he, actually three times, he had to climb his way through the field. He spun on lap one, got busted for speeding at the end of stage one, and then got dumped by Bubba. So he had to climb his way through the field three times. He was still able to finish eleventh. He was maybe a second off of his brother for a top 10 finish, which that would have been pretty impressive considering how his race went. Exactly. Yeah. So now, again, like we've got to speed through stuff. So I do want to mention Austin Sendrick picked up his first Xfinity win uh, with a great battle with A.J. Allmendinger in the Xfinity race on Saturday. So just a few brief comments about that, Seth. Uh, let it was an excellent race between the two. Uh, in the end, Almendinger ended up getting disqualified due to a rear ride height issue, uh, which was given Cindric the win regardless. But the two uh, duked it out back and forth over the last three laps, with Cindric coming out on top. Yeah, I've always, you know, I'm a huge Austin Cindric fan just because I'm, I'm, you know, good friends with his pops, Tim. Um, but I, I, I would love to see. You know, Penske have a Indy Lights program or a, uh, you know, for a Formula 2000 program uh, and and see Austin looking at the open wheel instead of the NASCAR. But, uh, you know, that's another story for another day. So um, where are we next? Where, where, where are we next in NASCAR? Uh, Michigan. And we also had Eldora. Oh, yes. Yes, we did. Yeah. Stuart Friesen got his first career win at Eldora after being the only driver not to pit throughout the entire race, the first time that's happened since 2007 in a truck race. That is amazing, yeah. So, okay, so picks for Michigan, everybody. Who do you like, Seth? Chase Elliott. Chris? Uh, Joey Logano, since I have him on the Steve Lovender uh, fan- random fantasy racing game. <laughs> the random fantasy racing game. I like that. Richard, who do you like for Michigan? 
Kyle Larson. Larson. Michael, you care to uh, put in a pick to, to, as the Michigan winner? Kyle, Kyle, I'm Kyle Larson. Okay, I'm going to go with Brad Keselowski. You come on this show and you agree with me. That's the first. <laughs> <laughs> no one agrees with Richard. Yeah, I'm going to go with Keselowski. Uh -huh. I'm going to go with Brad Keselowski, uh, hometown boy, uh, Michigan's home track. So, Richard, we have a minute and a half to discuss the Formula One race. Um, Lewis Hamilton, 82nd yeah. career win. 81, 80, 80, 80, yeah, so. somewhere right up there. And yeah. uh, but uh, really, the driver of the day was Max Verstappen. He just the, the Lewis just had a better pitch strategy. Yeah, I mean, p people often criticize some of uh, Lewis's his wins for being processional and you know just get out in front and, and hold it. But you know, you you've got to give credit where credit's due. And I think in the Hungara ring, Lewis had a great race. He drove you know really and both. Both Max and, and Lewis drove excellently. Uh, you know, Max, these last three or four weeks, or three or four races have been on it. Uh, the car's been quick. He's been competitive. I mean, he does, he could have theoretically won three of the last four races. So certainly there's a threat there. Now, that is very much track-orientated and also condition-orientated. Orientated. Uh, you know, the, the next two races that we've got post-mid-season shutdown are probably going to start benefiting Ferrari and Mercedes more. So you'd expect to see Max drop back a little bit. But there's certainly signs of improvement from the Honda camp and from the Red Bull camp. Um, but they, you know, it was one of those scenarios where Max was never going to win. You know, whoever was second had the upper hand in that race, and it was just unfortunate that the guy that had behind him was, was really, really competitive. Supposedly, by the time we get back for the next race at uh, Spa, we'll have an announcement on who's going to be the second driver at uh, Mercedes next year. I've got a feeling it's going to be uh, Ocon. I think uh, is going to lose his seat, unfortunately. Um, he's just not getting it done at the moment, which I hate to say because I think he's a great guy and, you know, enjoyed working with, with Valtteri, but I think he's just... He had a great start to the season, but Lewis has, has really upped his game in the second half of the second half of the first half, and I just think it's it's too much there for Valtteri, and he's he's made the mistakes and he's had the poor races, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I, th I think it's going to be I think uh, Ocon's going to be in that seat next. Yeah, year. and Mercedes promised him what they called a soft landing. Uh, or or a plan B, depending on which article you read, which which means they're gonna. It means he'll be in Formula One somewhere in a Mercedes-powered car. Oh, which, yeah, yeah. So I, but I mean, uh, to 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 lose a Mercedes seat and be put in maybe a Williams, you know, it's it's go back to Williams. Yeah, it could, um, could but be. I think Williams will look to have George Russell and Latifi in there next year. I think Latifi's probably going to win the Formula 2 championship, so they may end up, if George Russell wants to stay at Williams, which I think he's driving exceptionally well, I think, I think Kubrick is going to be out next year. Unfortunately, that just hasn't really worked. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we see Bottas at maybe a Haas, somebody like that. I think there's going to be a seat there. What, what about Red Bull? I mean, Gaffley's not getting anything done over there, and none of their driver development programs bringing any... Well, this up. is the point, isn't it? I mean, and, goodness me, if you'd listen to this show, you know I'd always bleat on about the driver development program. If Red Bull don't pick somebody from the driver development program, you might as well scrap the program. It's there for a reason, and it has produced drivers through, the, you know, through that system in the past. But as soon as you go to pick, you know, a, a, a Bottas, and I think Toto is still Valtteri's manager, and I don't think Toto would let Valtteri go to to Red Bull uh, unless it was a you know swap for Verstappen. Um, you know, you just you know. You, and again, it's the same with the argument for picking Alonso. Everybody'd love to see Alonso for a year in um, 
uh, you know, in a Red Bull while they wait for maybe Alex Albon to, to step back up. But you know, you have to pick one of those guys. If you don't, you might as well scrap the whole scheme. And I don't know how happy Honda's going to be to put Alonso in the car anyway. So, <laughs> well, at the end of the uh, the end of the day, I think the the Red Bull relationship with Honda is very, very, very different from the Claren relationship. If Red Bull turn around and say we're putting Alonso in the car, Alonso's in the car. I don't think you have this. Oh, we're best buddies, sort of thing that McLaren tried to parade for a while there. All right, fair enough. So, but we are in overtime, so we have to just green white checker it and and end the show. But I want to thank, I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. It was very very fun talking to you. Uh, looking forward to um, the film coming out on the sixth. I wish you all the success in the world. I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on. I want to thank you, Richard. I want to thank you, Seth. Um, you're with you guys are with me every week. I want to thank Hoobazoo Radio Network, iHeartRadio, and Spreaker. And I want to thank all you folks that listen to us every week. Uh, until next week, good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.